Support for Charlotte Readers Podcast is provided by Charlotte Mecklenburg Library, a connector of readers, leaders, and learners with 20 locations and a 24-hour online presence at cmlibrary.org. Welcome to Charlotte Readers Podcast, where authors give voice to the written words. We're a proud member of the Queen City Podcast Network and the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network, a series of author-hosted podcasts uh, distributing literary content to a worldwide audience. I'm your host, Landis Wade, a recovering trial lawyer turned author turned podcaster of books and stories, and I really appreciate you being here. Very quickly, before we get to the uninterrupted interview today, a few quick words about some of the benefits uh, for our listeners. Number one, we have show notes uh, for every episode uh, with images, links, and information about our authors at charlottereaderspodcast.com. And number two, if you're into audiobooks, uh, we have a relationship with Libro.fm, which supports indie bookstores. If you sign up with Libro to get your audiobooks and use the promo code CHARLOTTEREADER, you'll get an extra audiobook free. Number three, if you go to charlottereaderspodcast.com or my personal website, landisway.com, and you sign up for the book report, you're going to get it every other Tuesday. And here's what you'll get. Recommended readings, author interviews and videos, reading and writing tips, doses of inspiration, a free ebook by yours truly, and more. We won't spam you. That takes way too much time. And finally, we've got a lot of great content that we put out on our exclusive Patreon channel. If you like what we do here, uh, that is our mission of helping authors give voice to their written words, and you'd like to help us uh, defray the costs of this project, you can jump over to Patreon, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash Charlotte Readers Podcast, and you can tap into all the great extra content we've got that's curated by our authors and me about uh, their writing lives and the craft and business of writing and other things too. But enough with the prologue. Let's get to the uninterrupted story of our guest and the one they've written. In today's episode, we visit with award-winning writer Dale Neal, author of Appalachian Book of the Dead, a thriller filled with meditation, reincarnation, marriage and betrayal, death and rebirth, and how our fears give flesh to our hungry ghosts. Think Cormac McCarthy meets the Dalai Lama. Best-selling author Ron Rash says Appalachian Book of the Dead is a novel whose excellence defies easy categorization. To call it a metaphysical thriller conveys only a part of the novel's strengths. For the novel's characters are as complex and vividly realized as we'd expect in more character-driven fiction. Dale Neal's novel, Once Begun, will be hard for any reader to put down. And award-winning author Joan Silver says, I was properly scared throughout this book and properly delighted. It begins with a double murder and a disappearance, and then the Tibetan Book of the Dead guides us through a landscape of human miscalculations. It had me enthralled from page one. Dale, welcome to the show. Landis, I'm delighted to be here. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, so great to have you on the show. We're going to talk about your book cover in a little bit. It's it's kind of scary. I don't know. She's talking about, you know, this whole Book of the Dead thing. But uh, I think Ron Rash's comment's a good one. Um, this book defies categorization. Um, but you've got some good taglines, metaphysical thriller, think Cormac McCarthy meets the Dalai Lama. I love that kind of stuff. But has did it present any challenges as you're trying to write the synopsis or how you're trying to market this book to think, where does this fit? 
I think so. I mean, I think this has always been sort of an odd book. I've, I've done several novels previously, but uh, and I knew that this was different, uh, but I wanted to write a, a book that was different. Uh, I think uh, there's a lot of great Southern literature out there. There's a lot of great Appalachian literature and such, but sometimes it may fall into the same sort of easy kind of patterns, you know, with moonshiners and, you know, it's always the 1950s and, and so forth. Um, and the world is different. You know, if you go looking around, uh, uh, it is different here. So um, I was I was just really taken. A lot of it was sort of based on my experience as a journalist. I was a, a working journalist for the Asheville Citizen Times, the daily newspaper up here, more than 30 years. And uh, this book really sort of stuck with me early on when I covered a manhunt back in the back in the 1980s. Um, and there was this, you know, mountain community where, you know, a couple guys would run off. They'd killed a state trooper and sort of disappeared in the woods. And they found one of them fairly quickly. Uh, it took about three days to find the other. Um, but what I was struck with was uh, just sort of this, what I saw, this school bus coming down the mountain uh, and letting these, you know, young kids off into this community surrounded by all these armed men and SWAT teams and helicopters and just a terrified community and just that idea of fear, what it would be like to live in that kind of a community. So what I wanted to do was set up uh, a thriller uh, from the get-go and then have them sort of disappear. You know, is he there? Is he not there? Uh, Angel is sort of the villain we'll meet early on in the book, but then have it really talk about, you know, what is it like to live with fear? And it becomes more of a, as I think Rob pointed out, more of a character-driven story. Uh, yeah, and we're going to get to the characters in just a moment, but we can't talk about this book, the Appalachian Book of the Dead, without talking about, and I'm not going to pronounce the Bardo Thadal correctly, the liberation through hearing during the intermediate state, commonly known in the West as the Tibetan Book of the Dead. Do I have that right? Is that, that's, is that, that's, that's, that is right. So, um, I, and I was just, you know, fascinated by it. Uh, you know, again, back during my journalism days, I, I spent a, a stint as a, as a religion editor. And so I got to go around and, and I mean, you always think of the, the mountains or the South as just full of Baptists and a smattering of Methodists or whatever. But, you know, particularly up in the Asheville area, there's everybody you know shows up up here, you know. So, so you do have Buddhists out, you know, in the mountains and such. Um, and, uh, you know, I did do some... Uh, uh, I've done some meditation myself before, and, and it just sort of fascinated me, that sort of, particularly the Buddhist idea that things don't go in a straight line. You know, it's not this sort of upward and onward progression that you would sort of associate with maybe the Judeo-Christian Western sort of way of thinking. You know, Pilgrim's Progress, we're always mm. getting somewhere. Uh, and more of Eastern thought goes, well, it's, it's more of a circle. You know, we go in these big circles. So for me, it was really, can I write a big novel that looks like a, a mandala, you know, a circle? Um, and you sort of include thrillers and, and look at characters and such. So, yeah, this was kind of a, you know, a hard sell to publishers. You know, so, <laughs> you, know. You, you, found, you found a good one, uh, <laughs> you, you know, with uh, SFK Press. It, yeah. it takes They take some of that uh, kind of edgy stuff. You know, I had George Hovis on the show and... Uh, Kevin Winchester, you know, I've had some others on the show as well. Right, I've got right. that thing. So it's good. But but I didn't know much about, uh, still don't know too much other than what I researched before, you know, this call here uh, about the Tibetan book. That I wish I'd have studied it more before I started into your book mm -hmm. because it describes, uh, it's sort of, as I'm understanding it, 
it's it's a guide through the experiences of consciousness, including after death. This idea that there's an interval between death and the next rebirth, the, the reincarnation. And maybe if I'd have had that in my mind, I would have understood a little bit more, mm-hmm. you know, about what was going on, you know, at some parts of the book. Uh, that's an interesting concept to me that you would have this uh, religious practice or the, these teachings that talk about how to guide someone through a stage that most of us don't really think about, right? We don't think about this in-between stage. We think about, okay, you're alive and you're dead and there might be an afterlife, but not this kind of walking around through the mountains in this intermediate state, yeah. uh, which is kind of a freaky thought, right? I mean, mm-hmm. What really struck me with, with that whole Buddhist thing is that they have this, you know, they have these various states that you could supposedly get reincarnated into. Um, and a lot of the Buddhists, you know, there's some that really don't take this so literally. They don't really know, but they say maybe these are more psychological states that we go through anyway in in this, you know, in this existence. But there is one state that you could be, you know, you could be reincarnated as a god or as a human or as an animal or as, as a demon. But there is this category called hungry ghosts. And that really fascinated me because they're described, you know, and, and often depicted in, in sort of Asian pictures as such as these really strange looking beings. They have these really thin necks, you know, and they have these huge bellies. The idea being that they, their throat is so small, they can't get enough into their, into their belly. So they're always hungry. Uh, so they're to be sort of pitied, you know. And so there's a lot of rituals where the, the Buddhists are giving food to them on altars to feed them. But that idea that you have to sort of feed your ghosts. Uh, the other thing was that, you know, there's other people who in the West who have seen that as a perfect metaphor for addiction, right? Uh, there's a, you know, Canadian psychologist, you know, Gabor Mate, uh, who's written books about, you know, and he saw that as like, you know, hungry ghosts. Those, those are addicts. Those are alcoholics. These are people who can't get enough and they're tortured beings. Um, and so sort of, so this book became sort of an idea of not so much, you know, there's a killer in the woods, which there is, but also these characters in this community of Yona, uh, where it's set, Yona, North Carolina, they're all dealing with their own griefs and ghosts and their own particular addictions as well. So for me, it became more of a psychological thriller as we sort of went through. So, and it was a lot of fun. That was a lot of fun to play with. Okay, so... I think it would help uh, to talk about the book cover a little bit here. Uh, if they, they'll see it in the show notes, uh, Appalachian Book of the Dead. Uh, there's a symbol in the front. There's this beautiful scene, this kind of an orange tint to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, is the cover what you hoped it would be? Oh, the cover was gorgeous. I mean, I could. Uh, there were so many different ways you could go wrong with this cover, you know, uh, just from the idea of it. Uh, and I was, you know, it was, you know, suddenly Steve McConchie, you know, sort of, you know, called me up, wrote me and say, hey, we got it. You know, this is it, you know. <laughs> I said, okay, you know, yeah. fine. Uh, but what was nice is it does have that sort of, you know, a very literal sort of overview. It does give these mountains, you know, uh, it's not California. It's not the Rockies. It's very much the feel that you would get along the Blue Ridge Parkway. And I think yeah. people in this area would know that these mountains are different than other mountains in the world. And then, of course, you have at the top sort of this this sort of a circular image that does recall sort of a Buddhist mandala. You know, those things that we've seen Tibetan monks, you know, where they make the sand drawings. And uh, they can be very ornate. Um, 
And so you had sort of that spirit of, you know, the, the East meets, you know, the Appalachians, which is what I was striving for. Yeah, but it also has this uh, feeling to it that, uh, you know, dusk is setting a little bit on the mountains, and but there's a sort of a fiery red, almost like, you know, there's evil out there in the world, <laughs> <laughs> you know, so, so that, that's good too. So, all right. I think we can't really talk about this uh, book without talking a little bit about you and your experience because you, you've, uh, you're a novelist, you're a teacher, you're a veteran journalist. You said you live close to the banks of the French Broad in Asheville, but you've traveled the world. You've been to Pakistan. You, you wander on these uh, hikes. You told me 50 mile circle type hikes through the Nanahata wilderness and you do Zen meditation for the past 15 years. Um, I mean, all that tells me, yeah, you're the guy to write this book. <laughs> and my question is, did you did you sort of have this idea as you were on one of these 50-mile circular hikes uh, as you're going through the woods? And if it got dark, did you ever scare the hell out of yourself as you were thinking about it? Oh, I have. I have at times. You know, I, think, you know, I think that is the deal about walking around in the woods, um, that if you do it long enough, I, I'm, I like doing it. I'm comfortable but there's always this moment when you sort of say, you know, something's looking at me mm-hmm. um, or is there somebody behind that tree or, or there's something very human when you're walking in the woods. Every time you see two knot holes and sort of a little stick out of a tree trunk, all of a sudden you see a face, which is what human beings do. We're, we're patterned to see faces wherever we sort of look, even when they're not there. So we're sort of made to scare ourselves. Um, and I think that's sort of where I wanted to go with this book anyway, was that, you know, we create our own fears. Um, and that was sort of, you know, the, the Buddhist sort of teachings were able to give me sort of a, just a framework. And I thought of them as very psychological. I mean, these are, there's only, you know, one character or so, uh, Ainsley Morse, who's actually trying to practice some Buddhism. You know, the other characters, you know, they, this makes no difference to them or whatsoever. Uh, they have their own sort of routines and such. Um, but I think, you know, how we deal with it, how we generate our own fears, how we project our own problems onto the world, how we create our own sort of challenges. I mean, that's what, that's what novels do, right? You want yeah. to see what people do. Exactly. So, uh, your, your Dharma name is? Honen, Honen, uh, which means, uh, uh, Dharma patience or great patience, which, uh, you know, <laughs> I think it's kind of a perfect name for a novelist. It takes a long time to write a novel. That's uh, right. You, know, you just have to sort of keep, you know, working at it word by word and, you know, scene by scene. So, and this was, you know, I pretty much threw everything at this book, you know, like the kitchen sink. And then it went through a lot of, you know, some serious, yeah, yeah. serious revisions. <laughs> so, I, I, I said, so uh, you know, we're going to start here with a little read. It's what I'd call a killer beginning, and and that is pun intended, and you're going to hear why in just a moment. Get us in the mood here with this opening read. Okay, thanks, Landis. With his mind so neatly made up, Richard Peabody never saw them coming. Through the miasma of overpriced petroleum wafting from the gas tank of his dusty Seville, He'd never even considered in his biblically allotted 70 years the prospect of such pure meanness, crossing his path a quarter mile from the brick rancher he'd shared with his first and only wife, where last Easter they'd burned their 30-year mortgage in the hearth. Paying no mind, 
pumping his premium at the gas and go out Highway 9, Peabody, a retired CPA, Braves fan, and Presbyterian vestryman, sniffed for his favorite vice from the boiled peanut stand at the parking lot's crumbled edge. Steam from the cast iron kettle rose against the curtain of kudzu that choked the scrub woods. The summer's hatch of insects screamed in the imprisoned shade. Too late, he heard. Mister, can I ask you something? What? Peabody could smell him before he saw him. The lanky youth in the orange jumpsuit, reeking of work crew sweat. No, he didn't think so. No good came from talking to strangers, young ones at that, who always asked Peabody to buy them beer. He never saw the second one, only felt the blow from behind. The hose snatched from the tank and wound tight about his windpipe, the gas pumping against his pulse. Their swift hands dug through his suspended trousers for his keys, loose change, money clip, cell phone, his balls. He drifted into darkness, then came to with a splash of high-test petroleum on his face. Tell me, mister. You smoke? He couldn't see a face, only the back of a hand painstakingly tattooed to depict a naked woman struggling in a demon's claw. The inked hand loomed larger, holding a plastic butane lighter, and he heard the small scraping of the wheel before the world flashed white. At a station too cheap for security cameras, the sole witness was the black man in the peanut shack, half blind with glaucoma, who saw the fatal flash, a fire juggling arms and legs as the Seville fishtailed from the parking lot, where what little was left of Richard Peabody lay incinerated. Well, it was a dark and stormy night, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Yona. Welcome to Yona, North Carolina. I tell you what, that was the beginning. When I read that, I was like, "Wow, we're going to be on in for a ride here." And then, uh, and then we were. And 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 and. But then this this main character, this is Angel, Angel Jones, escapes from a prison work crew, mm -hmm. and you know he's leaving behind all these victims before you know actually hundreds of SWAT teams converge and they search and search and search, and it's as if he's disappeared. Uh, they believe he's dead, but they never find the body, right? Right, right. And uh, that that idea right there, so you then begin to wonder, okay, is he really good at hiding like Eric Rudolph, or is he? Is something else happened? Has he totally escaped their their clutches, um, or is he wandering around uh, in the ether, kind of? You know. <laughs> <laughs> so there, there is that ongoing mystery of you know what has happened to Angel because he is sort of out there in the woods. We do meet him later on, but right. uh, in the meanwhile, we meet you know those people who happen to live in that community with that lingering sort of mystery and question over them. Yeah, and let's talk about those characters for a minute. We've got Cal and Joy McAllister. They're new arrivals from Chicago. He's a retired commodity trader. He's got an alcohol problem, heart attack survivor. Um, he's kind of restless a little bit. Uh, Joy is a physical therapist. She's turned potter. She wants to reshape her life and her marriage. T talk about these two characters, what they're searching for, 
uh, while all this is going on in the background? Uh, well, Cal, you know, he's, you know, he's pretty much, a, he is a real hard ass. Uh, and he was a fun character to write, but, you know, he is, he has uh, made a lot of money uh, on the board of trade as a commodities trader. Uh, and he, but he has been sort of felled by a heart attack. Um, and he is, you know, a serious alcoholic, but he quit drinking. Um, but he's always hated Alcoholics Anonymous and 12-step programs and that sort of thing. So he, he stays, you know, he's, he's done it all by himself. Uh, and he reads, you know, the stoic meditations of Marcus Aurelius every day. And, uh, and so, you know, Marcus Aurelius sort of becomes a, a counterpart point to, you know, the Tibetan Book of the Dead, you know, later on. Uh, but Joy sort of, you know, Shanghai'd him down to Yona, you know, they're, they're retired, start over. Um, Joy really wants to get him away from Chicago because, you know, Cal really is sort of mourning the death of his own son uh, who died of a heroin overdose. Um, so Cal comes with his own ghosts. Uh, Joy, of course, you know, has a, a, her, buried her mother who died from disease as well. So Everybody has these sort of uh, ghosts that they come with. Yeah, and then and then you got this uh, one character I, I liked, uh, the the caretaker Dole Smathers. He kind of, you know, he he's as uh, mountain as they come, I guess. And uh, you know, he's he's fetching moonshine back and forth and helping Joy build build a kiln. And uh, t- talk about Doyle and his role in the story. Well, Doyle is the only native in the book, you know, and I think, you know, which is kind of realistic when you actually come up and live, you know, in the Asheville area or Western North Carolina, you know, a lot of the natives have gone on, right. Or died out or moved on for better jobs and such. So a lot of people were here are newcomers, but they're sort of in conflict with the, with the locals. Uh, so Doyle, uh, he's been the caretaker of the, the summer camp. It was a girls' summer camp that's then since been closed down. That's next door to Cal and Joy's property. So uh, Doyle becomes sort of their handyman and tries to show them the ropes. Uh, and, uh, and Doyle sort of is playing host uh, as well to yet a fourth character is real crucial, a uh, young woman named Ainsley Morse. And she's the granddaughter of, of Doyle's boss, you know, the camp owner. Um, and Ainsley comes with her own sort of baggage as well. Uh, she's come from out west. Uh, she's you know in her late twenties and such. She's going to be a heir to whatever fortune her grandmother leaves her. But she's uh, she's mourning the death of her boyfriend out west, who again uh, fell victim to drugs. So there is a lot of drugs and addiction, and people sort of wrestling with the, the aftermath of that. Yeah, she's a character uh, that she's she's sitting out on a yurt in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> Uh, you can see her meditating, oming, whatever yeah. you know she, she might be doing out there, and uh, but she's waiting to collect her inheritance. But in the meantime, she's out in the woods and uh, she's doing the boot, some of the Buddhist meditation as well. Mm-hmm. And she she picks up on things that some of the other characters don't pick up on because because of her meditation. But one of the things you talk about is how Angel's energy, this same you know, violent character from the beginning of the book, sort of drives these four people together. And then apart, and I'm wondering, you know, what you mean by sort of this energy, this force, that's driving these people together and then pushing them apart. Well, a lot of it was, you know, trying to keep, you know, these characters how they relate to each other. Um, uh, so it's not just, you know, angels' energy, but just living in, you know, sort sure. of a, a wilderness setting as well. So there's, you know, a big storm that comes on, and you know, a yurt's maybe not the best, you know, thing to live out. I love having a yurt there because, you know. 
all all the cabins have sort of fallen down that Ainsley was right. used to as a girl. And so uh, people in the Asheville area, you know, if you go out into the woods now, they're, they're putting up California-style yurts or such, which actually is a very sort of convenient kind of tent-like structure to, you know, to live in. So you'll find more than your share of sort of new age yurts up there. So I wanted to bring that into the book as well. This is, this is the contemporary South. This is not, you know, 50 years ago, uh, where it's always Cormac McCarthy back then or something, but yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> so, you know, and I think, you know, and, and, but, and Ainsley is sort of mourning in her own way, but she's been given this, you know, the sort of pamphlet, the Tibetan Book of the Dead, which is basically a series of readings for 49 days that teachers give uh, for to, look, to family members of a, of a loved one and saying, here's here's a way that you can sort of see your your loved one through, you know, these stages in the afterlife. Um, yeah, and, and several of the stages, you know, there's the clear light of reality. There's visions that you can have during these stages, hallucinations. Um, and when I said energy earlier, I'm thinking about this sort of, uh, whatever that force is that's going on in the background that we're thinking about because we've read these opening scenes and we know that the there's a manhunt that's been going on and they think that the manhunt was successful and either drove him away. But we, the reader, know, even though we don't know, <laughs> we suspect, <laughs> you know, that no, he's somewhere around, you know, and, and that's sort of all coming to a head, you know, as we, as we close in at the end. But this setting um, that you have here, where you put these people, it felt very remote, even though it wasn't far from civilization. And that was part of what you're trying to do here is to put these people out so that a maybe a quick 911 call isn't going to bring people as fast as they could get there to need to get there if something bad goes wrong, right? Exactly, exactly. I mean, cell phone reception is not is kind of right. iffy here. Uh, and this book is set, you know, probably about 10 years ago. We're, we're sort of before a lot of Wi-Fi and broadband and uh, smartphones and that sort of thing. So it is a little bit historical in that sense. But uh, yeah, uh, we do want to, you know, it is strange when you're out in the in the woods and you're surrounded by, you know, a nature that you can't, you're not sure if you can trust it or not. Is there someone out there in those woods looking for me? That's, that's very interesting and something to think about when you're ne- taking your next hike. Uh, <laughs> you know, who's, who's trailing behind you? Yeah. Uh, well, let's do this. Let's talk the writing life just a little bit. Uh, you know, you're the author of this book and some other award-winning works, and uh, you currently teach fiction and nonfiction at uh, Lenore Ryan University's Asheville Center for Graduate Studies. Um, so you've got students, and uh, you talk to students about writing. Um, what uh, what do you tell your students? I'm curious on the first day of class. <laughs> uh, th- this is fun. I mean, really, I mean, this is sort of child's play. Um, actually, I usually start with a an exercise that we don't do a writing exercise. I have them sort of outline their hand. You know, put their, piece of, their hand on a piece of paper and draw, you know, outline their fingers and such. Do you remember that from kindergarten or whatever? Right. You wind up with that sort of figure of your hand that you turn into yeah. a turkey or whatever. But um, And then we sort of write from there. I mean, it does sort of summon childhood memories. But in other words, that we're playing. Uh, that this is this is free play, um, and I think that that's that's kind of the important thing is to get into beyond sort of our linear, rational thinking and and think into the world of more dreams, more visions, more wild stuff happening. You know. Mm. Uh, so when you're writing a, a Buddhist 
metaphysical thriller. Are you are you meditating when you're writing? I and mean, what's going on here? I mean, do you get in a liminal state a little bit? Do you get up early? Do you do you write late at night when the mood is dark and and spooky? Tell tell me about your writing process here. No, I just sort of plug at it. You know, very. I think you know, a lot okay. of times I think uh, meditation gets misunderstood. And I think you know a lot of people. And I myself has misunderstood it uh, a lot of times over the years. Um, is that, you know, it is nothing more than looking at reality. Come to, you know, um, now, I think, you know, what's, what's interesting when you start getting into Tibetan sort of imagery and such, it gets very wild and very uh, strange. But again, all these Tibetan teachers are saying, look, this is, you know, not real or unreal. These are projections of your own mind. Uh, and in some strange way that you have to go and face your own demons, they they depict in such you know sort of really graphic you know visual ways mm. um, that these demons are no more or less than your own thoughts your own fears and you have to face them not run away from them so in that sense you know writing itself is just trying to get into that state where you're trying to picture a reality on the page and bring it to life so a lot of it's just careful noticing you know when you pay attention. Well, since this book is a little different, just kind of serious question about this. Do you did you write in the same spots you normally write, or did you find putting yourself in a different kind of environment helped you with this kind of book? I don't know because I think I wrote this over a number of years. You know, about it probably it takes me about three or four or five years, I think, to, mm-hmm. to get a book sort of up and running. Um, I did go down to uh, Artist Colony, Hambridge uh, Colony, outside of Raven Gap, uh, Georgia. Uh, and so walking around the woods there and, and looking at their pottery kilns and such, you know, really did provide a lot of inspiration for me. But a lot of it is just trying to get the, get the atmosphere right. Can I get you know, this feel of the woods right? Can I get the feel of this land right? Uh, and then all these other details. And, um, and then, you know, you have to remember that, you know, these, these, these things are not so far removed. You know, there's, there's lots of overlap, you know, between mountains uh, in sort of Zen meditation and mountains here, you know, so uh, it's very cool. I mean, you even look at someone like, you know, Charles Frazier and his sort of bestseller, Cold Mountain. You know, there is a cold mountain here, but he takes, you know, for his epigraph, you know, an ancient Chinese poet who was named Cold Mountain, right? Mm, <laughs> so there's, right. There, you know, we, 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 we're a global community now, so a lot of these things overlap. So it's not that strange that you're going to have sort of Buddhist thought or Asian sort of influences in a contemporary Southern setting, which is what was interesting to me. So what comes first for, for you when you're writing a novel? Is it the plot or the characters? Um, and when you talk to your students about that, how do you tell them what's more important um, or is one more important than the other in your opinion? Um, I think they sort of have to come together. You know, that it's very hard to sort of separate them out that characters and, and situations come up at the same time. Um, I usually, you know, read, read my students, you know, there's a quote by, from John Cheever that he really sort of downplays plot, you know, because that means you have to sort of figure out this mousetrap kind of thing. And I've never been really good at that. Um, but he says, you know, character and situation sort of come to him at the same time. So rather than sort of a machine or a, a mechanism that you're building, you know, Cheever calls plot, you know, or story is more of like, it's, it's a rudimentary, it's more organic. It's like a kidney, you know, you're, you're trying to create, grow a kidney rather than sort of build a machine. Yeah. What was the thir- first thing that came into your mind about this book? Was it a character? Was it an idea? Was it a particular character? 
Actually, it was the opening. I wanted to write that opening, that fast opening, where you have sort of a lot of mayhem going on, a lot of energy, uh, and then it just sort of halts, you know, and then those characters that, for all practical purposes, sort of disappear. But you can feel this kind of vibration going forward for the rest of the book, you know. Mm. And, of course, you know, Angel does return. Um, and the book does circle back. You know, we, we won't spoil. There is the, no, 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 we, no, we no spoilers here. We, no spoilers. We, want people, we want people to buy the book, you know, yeah. we want people to go read it. Yeah. And, uh, so, um, I sometimes ask this question, uh, to, to authors, uh, who've been writing for a while and, and teaching too. You've probably got a lot of advice to give your students, but this is a question more directed to you. What, what, what would you tell your younger writing self, something that you think would help that person based on what you've learned since then? Um, don't rush. I mean, don't rush. There's no great rush, you know, for any book or whatever. Um, I was always, and I think, you know, it is sort of ironic that my Zen teacher would give me a name uh, basically about patience. You know, I, I'm a very impatient guy. Uh, so, and I think that's part of the deal is that you sort of work with, you know, sort of what you think of as obstacles and flaws and the same old hangups and you know, I can't do this. And you keep working at it and you actually start finding that you can do this or you can do it better. So a lot of this is just sort of basic grunt work, you know, writing. Um, but again, it's a lot of fun when it comes down to it. I get to make up stories and th these are kind of cool stories, you know, <laughs> Yeah, it's fun. And, and I read my your book on the beach and enjoyed it, but I, I wouldn't necessarily recommend re reading it late at night in a creaky house all by yourself, far away from, you know, 911 responders. <laughs> uh, but but uh, so anyway, um, listeners, we've got a treat for you here, too. Uh, Dale and I are going to jump over to the, our Patreon channel in just a second, our listener supported channel. And uh, we're going to have a discussion uh think this is his title i'm gonna have to get beyond moonshine and snake handlers imagining the now not rehashing the past how to write the easy stereotypes of southern gothic and appalachian literature that's a mouthful that sounds fun i like the idea of moonshine snake handlers all that good stuff so hey listeners it's very nominal if, if, come join us over there uh for our exclusive content for those of you who support us uh on this uh, free podcast really appreciate it hey dale um just final question here. What do you hope readers take away from your book? Um, oh, God. I just hope they have a good time with it. Yeah, I hope yeah. They, they, they're scared properly. Scared. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're scared properly. That's, yes. that's good. Well, information about the book, listeners, is in the show notes at charlotteriespodcast.com. You can probably find it anywhere books are found as well. And uh, I've got links to, to Dale's website and information about him. So, hey, Dale, thanks so much for spending time with me on Charlotte Rue's podcast. It's been a delight, Landis. Thanks so much for having me. Well, that's it for today. Another fine author giving voice to the written words. You can subscribe to this podcast for free at Apple Podcast, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and most any podcast platform you like to listen to your podcast on. If you like what we're doing, please consider leaving a short written review on Apple Podcasts or the podcast platform of your choice. Because when you do, our authors' voices travel much farther and wider in podcast land. And if you're inclined to help us help authors give voice to the written words, and you'd like some member-only content cultivated by our authors and me as our thanks, 
please consider becoming a member supporter. You can find out how to become a member supporter and more about today's show and all previous episodes at charlottereaderspodcast.com. Thank you for listening. We really appreciate it. I'm Landis Wade for Charlotte Readers Podcast. Charlotte Readers Podcast is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network, powered by Ortho Carolina. For more information, go to queencitypodcastnetwork.com.